Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donation of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real, and today we're going to talk about a talk from President Monson in 1992 called The Attitude of Gratitude. I want to share about six clips, and after which I want to share some personal experiences of my life, hoping to give you a chance maybe to get to know me just a little better. I also want to remind each of the listeners, you are missing the opportunity to listen to some episodes way earlier than you're catching them on iTunes. You need to be a premium subscriber, though, to get that, and you can do that by going to the website, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You guys know all the other information, so let's get started. Uh, President Monson gave this talk in uh, in 1992. It showed up, of course, in conference in the Enzyme. The talk is an attitude of gratitude, where he went over uh, six or so things that uh, that he was grateful for. And I just want to share my thoughts on each of these and uh, and hope that you might in this episode get a chance to kind of get to know me know me a little better uh, in some in some experiences I've had that maybe I've never shared before. So uh, this is based on a lesson. I gave around Thanksgiving time. And so, uh, anyway, let's go ahead and get to it. Let's start with clip numero uno. First, there is gratitude for our mother. Mother who willingly made that personal journey into the valley of the shadow of death to take us by the hand and introduce us to birth, even to mortal life, deserves our undying gratitude. One writer summed up our love for mother when he declared, God could not be everywhere, and so he gave us mother. While on the cruel cross of Calvary, suffering intense pain and anguish, Jesus saw his mother and the the disciple standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. What a divine example of gratitude and love. My own mother may not have read to me from the scripture. Rather, she taught me by her life and actions what the good book contained. Care for the poor, the sick, the needy, were everyday dramas never to be forgotten. Let me tell you a little story about my mom. Let me give you some background first. My mom is an LPN and she works for a uh, a care facility for senior citizens and disabled individuals who need extra assistance taking care of them. It's essentially a, a nursing home, and she's worked there pretty much all her life. She started out as a as a nurse's aide. And then when I was probably about uh, 10 to 12 years old, my mom went back to school and got her LPN license. 
And it was quite a testament to me of, of how if we work hard and we do the things that uh, need to be done, we can get ahead in life. And so my mom's a great example in that regard. But the story I want to share ties in a little bit with her personality. My mom is uh, can be a tough cookie. You want to be on her good side. You don't want to you don't want to be the person who's on her bad side and who says something that you shouldn't have said because she'll let you know it. And uh, in a lot of ways, that was beneficial growing up. And I'll, I'll just share one instance. I got my first job when I was 14 years old. I was hired along with my cousin, who was also my best friend, to work at a hotel that was at the end of our street. And we were both 14 years old, which was the is and was the minimum age to, to work at. Uh, minimum wage was $4.25 an hour. And so me and my, my cousin, we started working there at the hotel. Our job was to go into the rooms the night after they had been slept in and to tear the sheets off the bed, to empty the trash. And then the maids would come in after us and put everything back together nice and neat with with all clean uh, bed linens and all of that good stuff. And I'll tell you, it was certainly interesting. Some mornings, some of those hotel rooms that you went into, uh, it was pretty obvious that uh, that people were partying pretty hard. And I worked there for about maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks, when all of a sudden we went in one morning and the lady there who was the boss told us that we both uh, were being let go, that we both were being essentially fired. And so we were kind of caught off guard, and we asked her why she was doing that. And her response was that it was because of our age, that we weren't old enough to handle this responsibility. So my cousin and I went home sad and frustrated and not really understanding why. And so as I walk in the door, my mom said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be at work. And I said, I know, Mom, but they let me go. And she said, why did they let you go? What would you do? And I said, I'd do anything, Mom. They told me it was because me and my cousin uh, were only 14 and that we weren't old enough to, to carry out this job. And so my mom, within maybe a half a second, storms into uh, our dining room, reaches in the cabinet, grabs a phone book out, and begins paging through. And I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm going to fix this. Which, which if you if you know my mom, that meant she was definitely going to fix it. And there was an Italian man uh, who lived in our community who owned about a third of the businesses in Sandusky. Probably still does, or at least it's in his family probably. And my mom finds his phone number in the phone book. And I, and I, I remember the conversation to this day. I mean, she gets on the phone with this very wealthy, very influential, very important man in our city. And she proceeds to tell this man that the story of me and my cousin being let go, where we were working, the reason the lady gave, how the legal age to work is 14, and how if you let my two, you know, my cousin and my or my nephew and my son go because of this reason, then I'm going to seek out legal counsel, I'm going to get a lawyer, and I'm going to sue you for all your worth. So I guess to make a long story a little shorter, uh, my cousin and I went back to work the next day, and, and that went really well. We worked probably for another month and then we quit on our own so so but anyway that's the kind of mom I had and, uh, and to this day if if somebody goes after her kids or rubs her the wrong way I mean she's got no problem letting you know it and uh, so anyway mom I'm just want to say I'm grateful for you and I hope that each of you kind of feel from your mom those types of nurturing aspects that kind of like a mother hen doesn't doesn't allow anything to happen to her kids uh, just sitting on her hands and that was the mom uh, that's the mom I I have. I uh, will turn some time over now to the to the second clip. 
Second, let us reflect gratitude for our father. Father, like mother, is ever willing to sacrifice his own comfort for that of his children. Daily he toils to provide the necessities of life, never complaining, ever concerned for the well-being of his family. This love for children, this desire to see them well and happy, is a constant in a time of change. On occasion, I have observed parents shopping to clothe a son about to enter missionary service. The new suits are fitted, the new shoes are laced, and shirts and socks and ties are bought in quantity. I met one father who said to me, Brother Monson, I want you to meet my son. Pride popped his buttons. The cost of the clothing emptied his wallet. Love filled his heart. Tears filled my eyes. When I noticed that his suit was old, his shoes were, were worn, but he felt no deprivation. The glow on his face was a memory to cherish. As I reflect on my own father, I remember he yielded his minuscule discretionary time to caring for a crippled uncle, aged aunts, and his family. He served in the Ward Sunday School presidency, always preferring to work with the children. He, like the master, loved children. You know, I never heard from his lips one word of criticism of another person. He personified in his life the work ethic. I join you in an expression of gratitude for our father. My dad is a little different in that he's really, really laid back. And so I appreciate hearing President Monson talk about to his father and talk about fathers in general. Um, my dad never really used harsh words. My dad has a, a great sense of humor. He's a big sports nut, which is where I get my uh, my passion for sports from. I, I still remember, of course, I live in Ohio, and I'm a huge Cleveland Browns fan. And, and obviously the Cleveland Browns have stunk for, since 1999 when they came back. But my first memories of the Cleveland Browns are in the mid-1980s. We had a really good football team led by quarterback Bernie Kosar, who, uh, who was not, you know, Hall of Fame material, but was certainly above average and considered one of the smarter quarterbacks in the NFL. And our team was solid. We had a, a running back and a fullback who both had a thousand yards in the same season. And while we didn't have like Hall of Famers at every position, although we did have a Hall of Famer at tight end, Ozzie Newsom, but he was at the end of his career, we had uh, above average players everywhere. Uh, linebacker Clay Matthews, the father of Clay Matthews Jr., who plays for the Packers. And I realize I'm talking about football, and, and for most part, Mormons probably uh, are a group that have a, a smaller percentage of members who are avid professional football fans, but but I'm a professional uh, football fan, and uh, so bear with me for two minutes. Um, loved watching the football games with my dad. I remember him screaming at the television as John Elway of the Denver Broncos seemed to have eyes in the back of his head and avoid the sack at all costs, just as Clay Matthews looked like he was going to nail him. Um, John Elway, without even knowing where Clay was, would seem to do some kind of duck and move around and get out of the way, and then he would run for 20 yards or throw a 40-yard pass. In three out of four years, from 1985 through, I'm sorry, 1986 through 1989, three of those four years, the 86, the 87, and the 89 season, the Browns ended up in the AFC Championship game with the Denver Broncos being their opponent all three of those uh, skirmishes. And the Broncos won all three. And if the Browns would have won any one of those, they would have gone to the Super Bowl. And they had a team that many expected to win the Super Bowl and had picked them to win the Super Bowl. But John Elway, even though his team didn't seem as good, John Elway figured out a way to get his team uh, the victory. So just an early thought there. The the other thing I want to share about my dad, he's just, just an easy guy just to be friends with. And so I consider him my friend. And my grandfather was tough. My grandfather would uh, would beat his children. He was harsh with his children. He uh, didn't always make the right choices in terms of his relationship with his wife or with his kids. 
But he worked his tail end off, and that's something my dad got from him. My dad, all through my growing up, there were times where he would spend months and months working 10 to 16-hour days at a quarry and come home. And and I don't remember him ever, you know, complaining or making a big deal out of it. It was just what you had to do to put food on the table. And so my dad's always been a a great provider for his family, and so I, I appreciate him for that. When my grandfather got cancer, and I was... I was somewhat angry at my grandfather because he had been so hard on my dad, who I just loved so much. And so I I had kind of grown up with some resentment towards my grandfather. I loved him and I respected him, but I, but I also had places in my heart that were a lack of respect and a lack of love because of how hard he was. But I remember when he had cancer and he was he was heading towards passing away, that that was the ultimate end of this, that it wasn't something they were going to be able to cure or fix. And my dad talking to me about his dad having uh, grown up in the Great Depression and talking about how hard life had been. And it was at that point that I started to soften up, realizing that my grandfather's experiences were way different than mine, and that he grew up in a time when you had to be tough. Uh, not that it excused his behavior, not that anything he did was right, but that but that at least it put it in a different light, and allowed some of that to dissipate. On the day my grandfather died, we were all at the home. He had eight kids. I don't know how many grandchildren, but lots of us. And we were all at the house. And the eight kids are all standing around his bed in the living room as he uh, he is pretty much unconscious and struggling to breathe. And for hours on end, he would just struggle to breathe. And finally, when he gave his last breath and his children and his grandchildren were in tears, eventually everyone around the bed walked away to kind of regroup. But my dad stood there absolutely motionless. To the point where he was there motionless for so long that I was beginning to be, be very worried, very uh, nervous about what kind of, what kind of health issues this might be for him as he's struggling with this grieving and whatever he's thinking and going through. And, and obviously anytime your parents are hurting or your children are hurting, you feel for that. And eventually after, I don't know, seven to ten minutes, my dad finally walks away from the bed just in tears. And he grabs me by the arm, and we walk out through my grandfather's back door into the back patio. And it's uh, it's early in the morning. And my dad looks at me, and he goes, you know, some people may never understand the love that exists between a father and a son. And he gave me a giant hug. And it was at that moment that I really grasped how much he loved his father and how much he loved me. And at that point, I was able to forgive my grandfather completely and to, uh, to move beyond that. And so I wanted to share that with you. Let's go to clip number three. Third, all of us remember with gratitude our teacher. Then there was a Sunday school teacher, never to be forgotten, ever to be remembered. We met for the first time on a Sunday morning. She accompanied the Sunday school president into the classroom and was presented to us as a teacher who actually requested the opportunity to teach us. We learned that she had been a missionary and loved young people. Her name was Lucy Gertz. She was beautiful, soft-spoken, and interested in us. She asked each class member to introduce himself or herself, and then she asked questions that gave her an understanding and an insight into the background of each boy, each girl. She told us of her childhood in Midway, Utah, and as she described that beautiful valley, she made its beauty live, and we desired to visit the green field she loved so much. She never raised her voice. Somehow rudeness, boisterousness were incompatible with the beauty of her lesson. She taught us the present is here. Live in it. She made the scripture actually 
actually come to life. Why, we became personally acquainted with Samuel, David, Jacob, Nephi, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel scholarship grew. Our deportment improved. Our love for Luchi Gertz knew no bounds. We undertook a project to save nickels and dimes for what was to be a gigantic party. Sister Gertz kept a careful record of our progress. As boys and girls with typical appetite, we converted in our minds the monetary totals to cakes, cookies, pies, and ice cream. This was to be a glorious occasion, the biggest party ever. Never before had any of our teachers even suggested a social event like this one was going to be. The summer months faded into autumn. Autumn turned to winter. Our party goal had been achieved. The class had grown. A good spirit prevailed. None of us will ever forget that gray morning in January when our beloved teacher announced to us that the mother of one of our classmates had passed away. We thought of our own mother, how much they meant to us. We felt sorrow for Billy Devonport in his great loss. The lesson that Sunday was from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. At the conclusion of the presentation of a well-prepared lesson, Lucy Gertz commented on the economic situation of Billy's family. These were depression times. Money was scarce. With a twinkle in her eyes, she asked, how would you like to follow this teaching of the Lord? How would you feel about taking your party fund and as a class giving it to the Devonports as an expression of our love? There was a long pause. The decision, however, was unanimous. We counted very carefully each penny and placed the total sum in a large envelope. Ever shall I remember the tiny band walking those three city blocks, entering Billy's home, greeting him, his brother Les, sisters, and father. Noticeably absent was his mother. Always I shall treasure the tears which glistened in the eyes of each one present as the white envelope containing our precious party fund passed from the delicate hand of our teacher to the needy hand of a grief father. We fairly skipped our way back to the chapel. Our hearts were lighter than they had ever been, our joy more full, our understanding more profound. This simple act of kindness welded us together as one. We learned through our own experience that indeed it is more blessed to give than to receive. I have uh, been impacted by teachers on, on multiple occasions in my life, both for good and bad. I had a kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Arndt, I think I'm okay giving her name out, I don't think anybody who in my hometown who maybe listens to this podcast will have any connection to her, so I think I'm fair in giving her name out. I don't think she'll that anybody from her family will come across this podcast. But Mrs. Arndt was my, my I'm sorry, first grade teacher, if I didn't say that, maybe I said kindergarten, but first grade teacher. And I remember one time uh, going to the bathroom and talking while I was going to the bathroom, which you weren't supposed to do, and so she got out a yardstick and smacked my rear end uh, in front of the class for, for doing that. And I went home and I told my parents and they called uh, the school and talked to her and she denied it, said she had, did not do any such thing. And uh, and it was like, hey, mom, dad, I'm not lying, you know. And of course, my parents believed me, but what could they do? The teacher wasn't uh, wasn't being honest about uh, what had happened. No, I guess if they wanted to pursue it, they, there were 20-something other witnesses in that room that saw it happen. But so be it. I had a third grade teacher, Mrs. Finley, who I, I, I was a bright kid. I, I got an IQ somewhere between about 125 and 140, but I never apply myself. I've always had, uh, average to bad grades throughout my life, uh, in high school, you know, all the way down to kindergarten and even in college to some extent. My grades were not what they should have been. And my third grade teacher, she was teaching math, Mrs. Finley, and I had figured out some formula, some way of like, figuring out this these math problems way quicker and easier than the right way that she was teaching us. 
And rather than shoot my idea down and simply push me to do it her way, rather she said, no, let's let's explore this a little bit. Why don't you pick a whole bunch of different numbers and try it with each and then come back in a day or two and report back to the class how that worked. In the way in which I figured out how to do it, and I wish I remembered the formula and I wish I remembered what type of math, you know, equations we were doing, but my formula worked for about 95% of numbers. It didn't work for everything. So I came back in the class and I showed her and the whole class how I came to the answers I did, how it was easier and faster, but then at the end explained that it didn't work for everything. And she praised me in that class for that, but simply said that in math, if we don't have a formula that works all the time, then we can't use it at all. But I'll never forget the encouragement in the room she gave me to explore doing something different than she had done. Now, let me share my favorite teacher. I don't even remember her name. I uh, It was in my senior year of high school. She was the English teacher. I was always the class clown. I was intelligent, so I could get by, you know, acing or getting Bs on tests, but I never did homework. And as I got into some of my high school classes, homework counted for a large portion of the grade. And so my grades were Cs and Ds, maybe once in a while a B, but generally Cs and Ds. But I don't fail things. I don't fail classes. I don't know that I ever ever had a lot of Fs, maybe one or two. And in her class, I remember joking with her one day, and, and you know, in the midst of my grades sucking in her class, in the midst of she being disappointed of me wasting my intelligence, she, uh, I asked her, I said, asked the whole class, I just raised my hand and said, hey, what do you think I'm going to amount to someday? And, and her answer was, Mr. Real, you're probably not going to amount to anything. And, uh, and that struck me. It was kind of offensive, but it didn't take long for me to realize that I, that I appreciated her honesty that I wasn't going to amount to anything uh, if I kept throwing away my intelligence and not applying myself and doing the work. So, mind you, in my senior year is the year I converted to the church. And I uh, I began taking the discussions with the missionaries. And the lessons were going well. I was moving towards getting baptized. But I wanted to know more about the prophet Joseph Smith. I thought, this is the most incredible story I've ever heard. So I started off at my school library. Didn't find a whole lot there. I worked my way to the Sandusky Library, the city library. And I found a wonderful biography there. Couldn't believe I found it. It was a biography of the Prophet Joseph Smith. It was titled, No Man Knows My History, written by Fawn Brody. And I thought, man, this is awesome. So I started reading and I realized pretty quickly that this was a critical work of the church. That this was a detractor of the faith. And I read through the book quickly, making mental notes of, of all the things in there that were contradicting what the missionaries were teaching me. And it was pretty apparent from the book that this was just such a difference what the missionaries were teaching that my, my testimony, which had just sprouted and was growing so fast and I was so excited, very quickly, uh, stunted. And as I'm meeting with the missionaries, as I'm meeting with my girlfriend, I'm going to her parents and talking to them, I'm, I'm saying, you know, guys, I'm reading this book and it's denouncing everything you're saying and it's making a lot of sense and it's really painting the Mormon church in a bad light. And so my girlfriend didn't have a lot of answers. The missionaries really didn't have a lot of answers that were appealing to me as, as I think most of you find as you explore some of these tough issues. They're just, just among the average membership of the church. There's not a lot of awareness or, or good responses. And so her parents offered some answers, but they really weren't meeting me at the level I needed. But I appreciated all of them, but it just wasn't taking care of the of my questions. And so the next day I went to school and I thought, you know, I gotta talk to somebody about this, just to just to bounce it off someone who's not a Mormon. And I thought I need an honest response. 
I thought, this teacher, she'll give me an honest response. So I went to this teacher, and it was at the end of the day. It was after school was over, and she was just getting ready to walk out of her room. I said, uh, and I forget what her name was, but Mrs. So-and-so, can I talk to you for a second? And she said, yeah, she's a she's got to be a you know, 65, 70-year-old lady still teaching, probably past her retirement age. Maybe my memory is bad, but I just remember her being a, an old lady. And I said, uh, I said, I got a problem. I said, I'm investigating the Mormon church, and I love it. And I'm enjoying the things that they're teaching me, and I'm really excited about the faith that that I'm I'm beginning to develop because I had been an agnostic up to this point, never attended church other than weddings and funerals. And I said, but I encountered this book, and this book just tears this faith to shreds. This book just decimates every truth claim that that the Mormon missionaries are teaching me. And I said, I don't know what to do. You know, I have two opposing sides giving me two different stories, and I don't know how to make heads or tails of it. What do you suggest? And I absolutely fully expected her to be critical of the Mormon church. Why, you know, she wasn't a Mormon. Why, why should she help me invest in it? I fully expected her to, to tell me to use my, my mind and my logic and to figure out what makes sense. I fully expected her to perhaps point me towards her religious leader or her faith. But she gave a really simple answer. She looked me in the eyes and she said, Bill, said you have to follow your heart. And for me, it was a, it was a spiritual answer. Uh, I felt that. And so it was at that point that as I'm finishing up the discussions, finishing the reading the Book of Mormon, begin to look up answers to some of the questions I'm finding in the book that I put Moroni's promise to the test, and I get an answer which speaks to my heart. And uh, so I joined the church. And so I'm grateful for teachers. Let's go to uh, to the next soundbite. Fourth, let us have gratitude for our friends. In the depths of World War II, I experienced an expression of true friendship. Jack Hepworth and I were teenagers. We'd grown up in the same neighborhood. One afternoon, I saw Jack running down the sidewalk toward me. When we met, I saw that there were tears in his eyes. In a voice choked with emotion, he blurted out the words, Tom, my brother Joe, who is in the Navy Air Corps, has been killed in a fiery plane crash. We embraced, we wept, we sorrowed. I felt highly complimented that instinctive Jack, my friend, felt the urgency to share with me his grief. We can all be great for such friends. I'll try to be short and sweet here because uh, uh, my friends are awesome. I told you already about my cousin, who was one of my best friends uh, when I was younger. And then there was also another uh, young man who went to the same school as my cousin did early on. And then my cousin moved. So my, my cousin moved to a small uh, rural area. I lived in a little township outside of a, a decent-sized city, and this other kid lived in the city. And even though the three of us went to three different schools, we hung around each other every week. I mean, we were, they called us the three amigos. And so my cousin and uh, and my other friend and me, we were just, we were best friends. We did everything together. Unfortunately, most of that involved a lot of trouble. We did a lot of things we shouldn't have, but never, but we always had a good sense about us. We never did anything that was going to get us into serious consequences. But we did lots of things that probably should have had serious consequences. And, uh, and I don't want to shed, you know, sit here and spend time talking about all the, the bad things we did, but we had a ton of fun and we were there for each other. If somebody's car broke down, the other person was there to give them a ride. If somebody needed something, the other person was there to help them. We spent night in each other's houses all the time. We, uh, we just did everything together. Even during the school year, we were together two or three nights a week. It was just, it was fun. I don't know that, you know, if you just, I hope some of you have had friendships like I've had. Uh, we were just super close and we did everything. 
I'll share, I guess, a, a couple of little stories. We had a putt-putt in go-kart and arcade. It was all part of one business, and it was near our home, across, but at the end of our street, we had to kind of go across a couple of properties. But uh, what we would do, and I and I, I don't want to incriminate myself on, on the podcast, but what we would do is they had this two go-kart tracks. They had one in the front of the place, the establishment, and one in the back. And sometimes what we would do is the three of us and a couple of other friends would go to the back go-kart track, middle of the night, and we would get the go-karts out, put them onto the track, start them up, and we would ride go-karts for an hour or two during the nighttime. And when we got done, we always put them back because we wanted to be able to do it the next time. We didn't want to get caught. And so we did that. We uh, we played on their go-kart track in the back. We got the go-karts out. We ran them. we drive all around. We had tons of fun doing that. We would take some of the putt-putt balls out of the crick so that we could use them to go out in a field behind our behind my home at the end of the street, and we would just uh, tee up golf balls and hit them all day. Uh, and the golf balls weren't ours, and there was no cost. And obviously, we stole them, unfortunately. And I look back, and obviously, uh, partly ashamed of what I did. But on the other half, I some of these things were, were quite fun at the moment. But the other thing that was just kind of funny, the front go-kart track had a fuel station that fueled the go-karts. It was underneath a little bridge where the go-karts underneath, went underneath this little underpass. And I guess the owners assumed that nobody would know it was there, but somehow we found it. And uh, it was just regular unleaded gasoline. And this got to the point where we were 16 years old and we're driving. And so what we would do is whenever we were out of gas, we would just go to this go-kart uh, business. In the middle of the night, we would pool underneath this little uh, area. We'd go fill up. A, a gas container, one of those red gas containers, fill it up and then fill up our car. And we'd do this two or three times until our car was full. And I remember one summer, I don't know that I paid for gas maybe once or twice the whole summer. And uh, I remember one one night I go there to fill up, just me. Usually we all went together, but just me. And my best friend meets me just unknowingly. He doesn't know I'm there. He just comes to fill up his car and we both meet there at the same time. And uh, anyway, it was... It was just those kinds of things. We just we just got into a lot of trouble. We had a lot of fun getting into a lot of trouble. This was before I I joined the church, so I've repented of all of it. So please uh, please share a chuckle with me, but but don't uh, don't look down on me because I sin differently than you. Uh, and in uh, my friend, my you know my cousin and my best friend, we just we were always together. And I hope again that you guys have had those kinds of friendships, not necessarily the illegal activity, but but friends that you shared your life with who who cared as deeply for you as a good friend should. And uh, and while we're not as close today, I'm not as close to my cousin and my best friend today, they're still there if I need something. And so there's been times that my, my best friend turned out to be an electrician, and there have been times where I've had issues with electricity stuff in my house, and, and just a quick phone call, and he shows up, and we uh, we share some old stories while we work on things. So I hope you've had that as well. All right, next soundbite. Fifth, may we acknowledge gratitude for our country, the land of our birth. When we ponder that vast throng who have died honorably defending home and hearth, we contemplate those immortal words, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. The feelings of heartfelt gratitude for the supreme sacrifice made by so many cannot be confined to a memorial day, a military parade, or a decorated grave. I uh, don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, but I, I will say I love love the country I live in. I'm grateful for the United States of America. I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have. And while we look at our political situation and some of the things that happen in our country and we're, we're in dismay over it, I uh, I hope we each are appreciative of the freedoms that we have here. And, and I don't know how many listeners I have outside of this country. I, I mean, no knock on where you come from or where you're at and, and what, what blessings your country provides you. I just want to share that I'm grateful for the United States. And 
I, I proudly take off my hat and put my hand over my heart whenever I hear the national anthem. And I'm lucky enough to know people within my family and within my circle of influence and, and circle of friends who, who have served their country. I, uh, I have a, a good friend, much older than me. He's now in a nursing home, but he served in World War II and he was up on the beaches uh, when the invasion uh, took place in Japan. And I just, uh, listening to him share some of those things once in a while when he opens up, just uh, causes within me a great respect for the sacrifices that he's made and for the beauty of, uh, of the religious and moral liberties that we have here in this country because of the sacrifices of people like him. And so thank you. Let's wrap up with the last and final, and I'm sure you can guess what President Monson's going to end with, and we'll go to that some. Sixth and finally, even supremely, let us reflect gratitude for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He taught us how to pray. He taught us how to live. He taught us how to die. His life is a legacy of love. The sick he healed. The downtrodden he lifted. The sinner he saved. Only he stood alone. Some apostles doubted. One betrayed him. The Roman soldiers pierced his side. The angry mob took his life. Yet there rings from Golgotha's hill his compassionate word. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Earlier, perhaps perceiving the culmination of his earthly mission, he spoke the lament, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not a place to lay his head. No room in the inn was not a singular expression of rejection, just the first. Yet he invites you and me to host him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and he with me shall sup. Who was this man of sorrow? acquainted with grief. Who is this King of glory, this Lord of hope? He is our Master. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the author of our salvation. He beckons, follow me. He instructs, go and do thou likewise. He pleads, keep my command. Oh, let us follow him. Let us emulate his example. Let us obey his word. By so doing, we give to him the divine gift of gratitude. My sincere prayer is that we may in our individual life reflect that marvelous virtue and attitude of gratitude in the name of Jesus Christ. I too am grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you feel that from this podcast. I hope when you listen to the things we do on here that you can tell that, that I care about the Savior and his atonement. It's why subjects such as grace and the doctrine of Christ and the Holy Ghost and the meaning of the sacrament are so important to me. But I'll also say I can be better. And I hope that uh, in the coming months that as we touch on other religious subjects that you and I both will be more strongly impressed to focus our life on the Savior. I remember listening to an interview once where a gentleman named Paul Toscano was interviewed. He is no longer a member of the church, but he was a member at one time. He had uh, had kind of met face-to-face with some of these issues that we talk about on this podcast, and in his questioning, the church uh, ended up having a disciplinary council and, uh, and excommunicated him, I believe. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how it went. He may have ended up asking his name to be removed instead, but, but I know that there was some disciplinary council involved, and, and it was over his questioning certain aspects of our faith. And after, and in this interview, which is after he was out of the church, he was asked if he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his answer was that he didn't, he no longer knew if Jesus was real, but that he hoped he was, that he couldn't think of a better person that he's read about and knew about to make an atonement for God's children. And so he hoped that Jesus was the Christ. And I too, I too join with him in that while I I have a testimony, I also hope and have faith that this carpenter 
out of Nazareth, that at least in the bare bones essentials of the story, that this this half man was also half God, that he came down from our Father in heaven to make an atonement, and that by his doing so, that someday I might live with my Father in heaven again, that my sins can be washed clean. And I hope you feel that as well. I hope you have a testimony. And if you feel like your testimony needs work, then go work on it. Go read, go ponder, go pray, go study aspects of the gospel, please. I hope that each of you have warm shoulders today. I hope each of you have had a chance to get to know me a little better, but have also felt the spirit of President Monson's message and have reflected on those people in your life who are important to you that you are grateful. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood From sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul away, send thy name. Now to carry me to realms of endless day Oh to grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to Thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for Thy courts above Here's my heart Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.